if at all possible, have that passage open on your Bible app or in your Bible if you brought it with you because there's some important phrases that we're going to be looking at together. I, here's how I want to start, though. I want to tell you the story of a person named Juan Mug. I get this from a philosopher named J.P. Uh, Moreland. Anyhow, Juan Mug. Juan Mug was a young man who had dreams of becoming a nuclear physicist. The only problem was, was that he was terrible at physics. Like, terrible. Uh, he somehow miraculously got into university. And on his very first physics exam, or physics test, 100 questions, okay, it was a true-false test, he got two out of 100 of them right. On a true-false test! And the two that he got right, he actually guessed at. Uh, every time he asked a question, uh, the teacher would think that, that the question was so bad that he would simply say, Juan Mug, uh, that is the most brilliant question I've ever had. I, I, I need a couple of days to, to think about it, if you don't mind, in hopes that Juan Mug would forget over time that he asked the question at all, and it worked like a charm, because Juan Mug was not very bright. Along the way, uh, his professor decided that he wanted to play kind of a prank on him, and he decided to give Juan Mug straight A's. And he talked to the other physics professors in the department and the other professors in, in some of the other departments, and he said, let's, let's do an experiment with this Juan Mug character. Let's make him believe that he is the most brilliant nuclear physicist that has ever come out of our school and, and, and see how long we can sort of keep this lie going. And so they conspired together to do that very thing, and, and Juan Mug made it through university with straight A's. If you've ever seen um, that movie Goodwill Hunting. They did a little move like that where they, they put this very difficult math question on the board for students in the physics department to walk by and, and they were promised that they would get a tremendous prize if they could solve it. And uh, of course Juan Mug, he gave it his best shot having no clue what any of the symbolism in the questions even meant. But he still was given the prize for having the correct answer though everybody knew that what he gave was not even in the right ballpark, let alone on the right field. Time went on and Mon Juan Mug actually graduated from university and uh, the physics professor decided, let's, let's keep this prank going. And so he contacted all his colleagues around the world in different physics departments and he said, what I want to do is I want to keep this guy believing that he is the best uh, nuclear physicist ever. And so he was given a chair at one of the other universities, an endowed chair in physics. And he went around the world and he spoke on matters related to nuclear physics and he had people stand up and give him standing ovations as he spoke complete gibberish to them that made no sense at all but he believed that it was it was all true and that it was all good and it was all edifying he won the nobel prize even the nobel prize group over there in uh, is it sweden i think we're in on the joke and uh 
He was the butt of every joke. Anybody who knew anything about the world of physics, they made fun of Juan Mug behind his back constantly. But here's the thing. Every morning when Juan Mug woke up, he had wonderful feelings about himself. He thought that he was making a difference in his field. He thought he was making a difference in the world. And it was all for the good of humanity. He was incurably happy. And he met every goal that his heart desired. Because he believed that he was important to the world. And doing productive work for the good of society. Now here's my question. Things were working for Juan Mug. And my question is, would you like to be Juan Mug? Put up your hand if you think, it would be great to be Juan Mug. Sure, I'm the butt of everybody's jokes. Sure, I'm a complete laughing stock in the community. But I don't know it. I think I'm doing a fantastic job. Everybody tells me that I'm wonderful. They blow sunshine at me all the time. And uh, I can live with that. I'm happy to. Put your hand up. Nobody's putting yeah, One guy's like, oh, maybe. I don't know. Not bad. Not a bad life. Ah, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Would you want this for your child? That your child was Juan Mug? You see, Juan Mug was a pragmatist, okay? His life kind of worked for him. He believed himself to be an exemplary physicist, and, and regardless of whether he was one or not, he was happy, and that was the thing that really mattered to him. Now, if you said that you don't want to be Juan Mug, that means that there is something that is more important to you than whether your beliefs work for you or not. And that is, are my beliefs true? What's more important for you than just being happy is living in the truth. You want truth. That's what matters to you. People say, you know, we live in a world where it is so hard to know what is true and what is, what is right and, and what is false. But, but the reality is, is it still matters to us. We want to live in a world of truth. We don't want to live by lies. Now, we are in this series on the foundations of Grace Valley Church. We're looking at our core values, the things that, that we value and are, are very, very important to us. And if you want to know what those are, you can read about them in more detail on our website. These things are what we're about and what we, what we value and what matter to us. We're where I like to tell people Grace Valley is an aspirational church. We're always looking towards something. We haven't arrived, but we're trying. And in this series, what we're trying to show is how these core values that matter to us oh so much, they actually correspond to universal human needs that all people have, regardless of where they live or when they've lived or what their worldview is, what their belief system is. Everybody has these, these core desires. And, and one of those core desires that human beings have is they want to live in truth. And they want to live by what is true. Now, today, we're going to look at this core value that Christians have that is the book. This book. The Bible. You see, Christians base their faith 
what they believe on the teaching, what this book reveals. And we believe at Grace Valley Church that this book tells what we like to call is the true story of the world. There are lots of people telling stories about the world, things about where the world began and how it began and what the point of living is, etc. And we believe that this Bible answers those questions and tells us the truth about what, what the world is, how it got to be here, what's wrong with the world, how it can be made right, and what you and I are supposed to do as participants in the history of this world. That's what we believe. In other words, we believe that this book gives us what Francis Schaeffer called true truth. Guys like Friedrich Nietzsche, Michael Foucault, or Michel Foucault, however you say that guy's name, Jean-Paul Sartre, these are European philosophers. They say there is no such thing as absolute truth. There's only my truth. Have you heard that before, that people go on TV shows and they're, they're going to go there to tell their truth? Do you remember uh, Raybould? She was the uh, attorney general. No, do we have an attorney general? Minister of... Um, forget it. If I can't remember what she did, I can't, and I can't remember her name properly, I'm not going to tell you about it. But she wrote a book where she wanted to share her truth, which was her side of the story. We believe in our culture, a lot, a lot of us believe that truth is relative, that truth is something that can only be known in part because it's all spoken about through perspective. And yet, we long for truth. We don't want to be one mugs. Even if it works for us, if it's a lie, we don't want to live that way. We want something solid that we can set our feet on, that we think believes that, that it explains reality, that we can, we can put our trust in. And you know, this explains those times in our lives when we actually glimpse this kind of truth, even if we're not believers. Some, some of you may have heard of a guy by, by the name of Leonard Bernstein. Anybody hear of Leonard Bernstein? He was a great musician and a great uh, conductor, orchestra, orchestral conductor. He conducted the New York City Philharmonic for many, many years and a very prestigious post, and he was very, very good at it. Listen to what he says. He's not a believer. He's actually an atheist. Doesn't believe that there is anything beyond the physical world that we can see with our eyes. All that matters is matter. That's what he believed. But this is what he said. Listen to this. Beethoven leaves us with the feeling that something is right in the world. That something checks throughout. Something that follows its own laws consistently. Something we can trust. Something that will never let us down. He had a yearning for this kind of truth that I'm trying to describe for you. That you can, you can trust. That you can plant your feet on. That will never let you down. As the world is changing around you so fast that it makes your head spin. You know that this thing doesn't change. It is true. We all want that. Even if we don't believe it exists, we want that. We can't explain why we want it, but we're always reaching for it. We're always seeking it. Now, that was a very long introduction to this morning's message, but it's actually the first point of the message. We want a truth. We cannot escape it. You know, you, actually, you can't, if you, you know, you, can, you cannot escape escape claims to absolute truth because as soon as you say there's no such thing as absolute truth you've just made an absolute truth claim did the penny drop on that 
As soon as you say there's no such thing as absolute truth and everything is relative, it's just from your perspective. As soon as you say that, you've made an absolute truth claim. We can't escape it at all. Now, around here at Grace Valley Church, we like to say that Jesus answers life's deepest questions. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. How do we know that? Well, we get it from here, right? We get it from the Bible. Okay. How can we be sure that we can trust this thing called the Bible? What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you three reasons that you can trust the Bible, and then I'm going to give you two reasons why you need it. Three reasons you can trust the Bible and two reasons why you need the Bible that you can trust. That's what we're going to look at this morning. And we're going to talk specifically about the Gospels. We read from the Gospel according to Luke, and we're going to talk about the Gospels. And the, the reason we're going to talk about the Gospels is because the Gospels tell the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth, as described in the Gospels, is a man who lived 2,000 of year, years ago. He walked along, he walked this earth in Palestine, and he said, I am not just a man, I am the Son of God. I am God incarnate. If you want to know who created this universe, if you want to know what he's like, if you want to know the one who is all-powerful, all-glorious, all-majestic, all-holy, all-righteous, all-good, if you want to know who that being is, look at me, because I am him clothed in the flesh of humanity. That's what Jesus said about himself. That's what the Gospels tell us about this Jesus. Now, the Gospels, if they're right, here's the logic, people, if the Gospels are right in what they say about this character, Jesus, then we can trust what this Jesus said about himself. And one of the things that Jesus also said is, the Old Testament is the word of God. Now, if Jesus is the son of God in the flesh, as he says he is, as the Gospels describe him, then we can trust that the Old Testament is the word of God because Jesus is God and he said so. Do you get that? That's why we're looking at the Gospels. That's why what the Gospels say about Jesus is so, and the trustworthiness of the Gospels is so central to our faith system. Now, what I intend to do this morning is I intend to teach, teach rather than necessarily inspire. I hope it's inspirational, of course. And your faith is strengthened. But my intention is to teach you as opposed, not as opposed to, but more than inspire you. So first, first point. We're looking at Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And the reason we're doing so is because Luke describes the Gospels, okay? And he describes what he's done with his Gospel and why we can trust what he says because of the things that he has done in writing his gospel. And the first thing he does is, is he appeals to the writings of others. In verse 1, it says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Many. There are others who have tried to write down what happened among us when this Jesus of Nazareth lived among us. And, and most uh, most scholars believe that Luke had access to the Gospel of Mark and he had access to the Gospel of Matthew 
and he used them to fill out some of the stories that he was tracking down and trying to understand about the life of Jesus Christ. But what this means is, is that Luke, as a, as a good investigative journalist, he's cross-checking the various accounts of what happened in the life of Jesus. He was a doctor, I don't know if you know that, a physician, he was a doctor, and he's not quite like, like MDs today, very specialized. Doctors were more generalized in their knowledge and their understanding and, and in their, their expertise. But what it means is, is that he was a scientist. And he knew that he needed to fact check the stories that he was being told. And you can't just write whatever pops in your head and write it down and say That's, that works. He, he, as a scientist, understood that you've got to be methodical and you've got to cross-check and you've got to fact-check. And that's what he did when he says, many have undertaken to take up an, draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. He's saying to Theophilus, the guy who he's writing this letter for, he's saying to him, look, there are all kinds of stories around, but... Just as they were handed down to us by those from whom the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word, we'll get to that. With that in mind, he says, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, what did I do? I, too, decided to write an orderly account for you. So my orderly account can be tested against the accounts that others have written down. That's the first thing. The second thing, he says, is that he interviewed eyewitnesses. He says in verse 2, just as they were handed down by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Now this is huge. Because people say, you know, the New Testament, very interesting stories. Gospels, super interesting stories. Great stories. But come on, they're not historically accurate. You can't believe that. What they say is, you Christians, you want to believe they're true, so you say they're true. Not you found out that they're true and therefore you believe. Well, Luke is saying, actually, that is precisely what we've done. Christians believe in Christianity because the events of the life of Jesus actually happened. Now, this is an important point. If you are a Christian here and you believe that Jesus did all these things, what you're saying is, is I believe in the historical person who lived and actually did the things recorded in the Gospels. The Christian faith is very unique in that it is what's called an historical faith. It is based on history. It's based on actual events that happened in the past. And the Bible is so adamant about this that, it, that Paul actually says that, that if that's not our foundation then our faith is actually useless. In 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 12, Paul says this. Listen carefully. If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Okay, that's not my main point. Keep reading. If Christ has not been raised, listen to this. Our preaching is useless and so is your faith. He's talking about the resurrection. And he's saying, if Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead the way the Gospels say he did, then my preaching to you is useless, and your faith in this Jesus is in vain. Because the Christian faith is an historical faith. More than that, he says, we are then found to be false witnesses about God because that he raised Christ from the dead. So we're lying about God. If we say that he raised Jesus from the dead, but he didn't actually do it, we're liars. But he did not raise him in... 
but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, listen to this, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. And then he goes on to say, uh, those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. People should show pity on us for believing something that isn't true. That's what Paul is saying, because Christianity is unique as a religion. Think about this, okay? Buddhism is founded on the teachings of Buddha. Siddhartha was his name before he became the Buddha. And if you ask a Buddhist, what if you discovered at some point that there was no Buddha? That the writings that we have of Buddhism didn't come from this guy. Would that change the faith at all? They say no. The teachings are still true. If you ask a Muslim, what if you found out that it wasn't Muhammad who wrote down the Quran, but it was someone else? Does that change the religion? They would say no, no problem at all. God could use anyone to bring his re give his revelation to us. It doesn't have to be Muhammad, but Christianity is different. Christianity says these events had to have happened or our faith is a joke. Why? Because, understand something, friends, the Christian faith is not, first and foremost, faith in a set of teachings. That's what it is in Islam, that's what it is in Hinduism, that's what it is in Buddhism. It is faith in a set of teachings about how you are to live. Christianity is utterly unique because our faith is in a person who, who really existed, who really did things. It's not enough in Christianity to simply say, oh, I like Jesus, but I liked his teaching. At the core of Christianity is faith in him. Not, and not just faith in him that he was a person who lived, but faith in him as a person who came to save us from our sin. We are not saved. Listen, you are not saved by loving your neighbor as yourself. People say, the golden rule. Everybody's got the golden rule. Islam, Confucianism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity, they all say something about the golden rule. We're supposed to live this way. Yes, that's true. But Christianity has never argued that you are saved by loving your neighbor as yourself. All these other religions will say, yes, you are. And Christianity says, no, you love your neighbor as yourself, not to be saved, but because you are saved. Our salvation is in this person, Jesus. So now what on earth does this have to do with 1 verse 2? Eyewitnesses, etc. Well, if you want to create a legend, if you want to create a myth, what you have to do is you have to make sure there are no eyewitnesses around and left to contradict you. Right? You got to make sure that there's nobody there who can say, wait a minute, I was at, I was at, uh, Bethany, when Jesus raised that, allegedly raised that, that uh, Lazarus guy from the dead, that never happened. You got to make sure that those people aren't around to contradict your message. But Luke does the exact opposite there. He says, there were eyewitnesses. I interviewed them. You can interview them too. Go ahead and ask. Third thing. Luke listened to the teachings of various communities. He says in verse 2, just as they were handed down to us by those 
who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. What does he mean by that when he says that those words were delivered to us? Well, Luke went around and he heard the accounts of people in different places. And you might, like, you know the telephone game? You ever played the telephone game, right? You have 10 people and you tell the first person, blah, 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 blah. You tell them a story, right? And then they're supposed to repeat the story to the person beside them who repeats the story to the person beside them. You get to the 10th person and when they tell you the story, it's like completely messed up. It's nothing like the original story. And people say, see, that's what happened in, Christ in uh, the first century Palestine. It's like the telephone game. It was oral history. People weren't writing things down, and therefore we can't be sure that those things actually happened. Luke is actually saying, no, you can. I went around and I corroborated the different stories. You've got to understand, first century Palestine was indeed an oral culture, meaning the way they did things was through words memorizing words take for example they, they they actually had villages would have the official storyteller in town so let's say an earthquake happened in a town the official storyteller would tell the story of the earthquake but all the people in town they knew the story and the the storyteller would tell all the people to make sure that it's accurate etc and the job was for the storyteller to repeat the story over and over again so that everybody understood but he wasn't allowed to go and change the story because the people around him knew what the story really was and if he tried to they would call him on it just like any of you who has had a three or four year old they've got their favorite book right and you open up their favorite book, and you start reading their favorite book, and they don't know how to read or anything, but they can basically tell the story along with you. But if you try to have a little fun with them, you skip a page, right? You ever do that? You try to skip a page and keep reading. Wait, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. No, no, no. You missed a page. Go back. They know the story better than you. And your job is to tell the story. Well, that's how it worked in these communities. We like to say, well, ancient cultures, they didn't know how to preserve history. I mean, everything just became myth and legend, etc. That, frankly, is actually elitism. First century Jews were known for being able to memorize entire books of the Old Testament, word for word. And all this and more, I don't have time to give you the more, but all this and more led Luke to say, it's true. What, what the Gospels say, what I learned from Mark and Matthew, what I've heard from the eyewitnesses, what I've discovered from the interviews that I've made and the corroborating evidence that I've found, it's true. Jesus did miracles. He did die and he did rise again from the dead. The only explanation for that is he must be who he said he was, which is the Son of God. And he says... I wrote this down. This is verse 4. He basically says, I wrote this down so you could be sure to believe it too, so that you may know that the you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Unchanging truth that doesn't change with shifting shadows. Here we're going to move to the I gave you three reasons why you can trust the Gospels. Now let me give you two reasons why you need to. The first one is this. This frees you from being shaped by your cultural moment. The truth is that many of your beliefs, many of my beliefs, many of the things that we believe and hold true and are important to us, they are not deeply thought out. 
We like to think they are, that we've, you know, worked really hard to reason them out and come to these conclusions. Uh-uh. Most of the time, we believe things because we're swimming in a culture that says it's true. We're, we're, we're products of our time and place in history. Um, Tim Keller uses an illustration that I think so powerfully demonstrates this. I'm going to use it too. Human sexuality is a hot-button topic right now. Everybody's talking about it. Sexual, sexual orientation, gender identity, all these things are, are up for grabs and, and people are questioning them today. This is Tim Keller's illustration. He says, imagine yourself in a medieval village. So we're talking 1200, 1300 AD, something like that. And there's a young man and he's walking through the village and he has two equally strong impulses. One is violence. If you look at him sideways, if you disrespect him, this is a very strong shame and honor culture. If you besmirch his family or something, he will resort to violence to defend himself and to defend the good name of his family. He's got his sword. He's packing. This is medieval heat. He's packing. And he's just ready for you to diss him so that he can chop off your head. But he also has an impulse towards same-sex attraction. And because of where he lives and because of the time he lives, he is strongly encouraged to suppress one impulse, one desire, I'm sure you can guess which one, and to cultivate the other. Now you fast forward a thousand years and now a young man is walking down the streets of Dundas and he has two very strong impulses. One is violence. He plays a lot of cod. And he watches too many videos about gangsters who, if you diss them, they're going to cap you. And he also has another very strong impulse. He is attracted to members of the same sex. And in his culture, he is encouraged to repress one desire and to cultivate the other desire. I'm sure you can guess which is which. But cultures change, right? How do we arrive at what we ought to believe? What is is not what ought to be. What is, is not what ought to be. How do we arrive at understanding what ought to be? See, we think we're free. We think in our culture that we are so free to make our own decisions and chart our own path, and I am the captain of my own soul, and all that kind of stuff, when in reality, we are being swept along by our culture. We are in a river of a powerful current, and we are going along with everybody else all the while thinking that we're free. You want to be truly free? You tie yourself to something that is transcultural. You hit wagon or you tie your boat to a truth that you know will not change with the shifting cultural mores. And scripture, because it is the word of God, it transcends culture. 
And therefore, there are times where things that the Bible says jive with our culture and are completely in line with our culture, and then there are things that the Bible says that are completely opposed to our culture. Right now, our culture loves the idea of justice and treating the poor with dignity and reparations uh, for those who have been oppressed. These are all themes in the Bible that our culture absolutely loves. But then our culture comes along and says, and then the Bible says that you're supposed to keep sex within uh, marriage between a husband and a wife. Well, that's repressive and wrong. No surprise. But on one hand, the Bible is going to speak with the culture and the voice of the culture, and on the other hand, the Bible is going to be up against the culture because it's transcendent over culture. How do you know what's true? Well, you submit to the one who wrote the story of the world. That's what I'm saying. The true story of the world is recorded for us in this word, and we submit to that. That's, that's the first thing. The second thing is, you need this, not just to be truly free, but you need this to be truly free. Now you're like, what are you talking about, guy? I'm, I don't know. Let me try this. You need a straight edge in your life. You need a moral straight edge to judge your behavior to know whether what you're doing is right and what you're doing is wrong, whether you're living for the right things or you're living for the wrong things. We all need a straight edge. You know what a straight edge is, right? A rule, something that you can put, you know, if you want to know if a, a, a door is crooked, you put a level on it, and the level will tell you if it's crooked, and a level will show you what is straight. If you just try to eyeball it, the, the door is crooked, the doorway is crooked, especially if I've built this door and doorway. The, the, the ceiling is a little bit crooked, but it's all kind of crooked the same way. So then you look at it and you go, bang on straight, and you're wrong. There are people who say, I don't really ever do anything wrong. I don't really have any regrets. I don't, I don't sin. What they need to be is convicted. And the way they can be convicted is when they come up against the straight edge. So that no matter how I feel, because I've done so many things in my life that felt good, but were wrong. And no matter what I say, and no matter what you say, because the word of God convicts me, I repent. If the Bible says it's wrong, I repent. And I don't listen to those other voices who say, even my own, don't worry about it, it's okay. No big deal. Everybody's doing it. And then there are some of us who are always feeling guilty. I was talking to my cool catechism class. I got a cool catechism class that's meeting before church right now. I was talking to them about Martin Luther. Martin Luther always felt so guilty for everything he did. He spent hours and hours in confession. At one point, his confessor, John von Staupitz, said, Luther, your conscience is so sensitive that I think you would even confess a fart. Some of you are always feeling guilty. You're always afraid of, of what you've done as being an offense and a sin, not just against God, but against others as well. And you need this straight edge too. You need to be vindicated so that no matter what I say, no matter what your family says, no matter what that friend says, no matter what that Facebook troll says, no matter what they say, you have checked your behavior and your actions against the straight edge and you can say, I'm not guilty. That's what you need. We all need that. And the place we find that 
is in the word. Well, how do we finally ultimately submit to the word? Well, we listen to the heart of what the word is telling us. And the heart of what the word is telling us is this, friends. That though you be a terrible sinner, and that though we be deserving of God's abandonment and his justice against our sins, that though those things be true, the heart of the gospel is this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever would believe in him will not perish, will not perish, but have eternal life. See, the heart of this book's story is not to cause you to submit with fear because you're afraid of being judged or because you're afraid of the the despotic God who will cast you out into outer darkness. No, the heart of the story is a love story of God wooing us with his love to be his children. The same love that he loves his son with, he loves you with. And you say, how can that be true? I'll close with this. It's an illustration I've used many times. Many of you know this already. My two older sisters are my half-sisters from my mother's first marriage. And my dad married my mother after my mother had had my two sisters and they were husband and wife. And my father adopted my two older sisters as his own. I had no idea until I was probably 10, 11, 12 years old, and my dad sat me down and he said, I got to tell you something. I don't want you to hear about it on the schoolyard or something. I want you to know a bit of the story of your mother and your sisters, and I want you to know this. And I had absolutely no clue. And you know why I had no clue? Because there was absolutely no difference in the way my father treated and raised my, his adopted daughters and the way he treated and raised me and my sisters. Now, you think to yourself, we have many adoptive parents here. Just want to shout out to you. That's not just godly, that's godlike of you. And that's amazing. And we all sit here and we hear that story and we say, well, that's how it should be. Yeah, of course, that's how it should be. Yes, that's how it should be. That's how it should be for you and I, who the Bible says, by our nature, we are evil. And we're still able to do that good. How much more will the God of the universe, who is perfect and pure in every way, how much more will he do what is right? He loves you and I, his adopted children, with the same fierce, pure, undefiled, infinite, unending, unbreakable love with which he loved his own perfect son. That's how much he loves you. That's the story of the Bible. And when you let that sink into you, the core story of the Bible, that you have been adopted into his family, that there is nothing you can do to change his deep and profound love for you, when that sinks into you, submission to his word is not a duty, it's a delight. Happy to do it, Lord. Because you demonstrated your love for me in this. While I was a sinner, while I was a sinner, Christ died for me. Let's pray. Father, we hear from this book an astounding story that Jesus the King left his throne behind in order to come into this world and save sinners like us and to establish his kingdom that you 
you call us and invite us to enter as we submit to your word and live according to its truth. What a story. All born of your eternal love. Help us, oh God, help us to believe the story, to submit to the story, to live with joy out of the story. May we at Grace Valley Church be people of the book. In Jesus we pray, amen. All right, you see the sign. If you're in grade five or six, you are invited to join Sermon Breakout with an adult, Hildy, who will go with you and take you to the room where that's happening. The rest of us have an opportunity now to ask questions that I can attempt to answer. You can text me. My phone number's been up, I think, for a while. Um, I have one question that I can, I can read here. Let me just read it for a second. So, um, we as believers understand that all Scripture was breathed out by God. That's 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. Absolutely. How would you explain to an unbeliever about a passage like this, as it was Luke's account? So, I, I think they're saying, I think the question is saying, how would I, how would I explain Luke 1, verses 1 to 4, um, to an unbeliever. Well, I, I wouldn't actually change much of what I've said. I would say to that person, what you can witness here is Luke's apologetic for the trustworthiness of his story. And Luke is encouraging Theophilus, the recipient of that story, he's saying, there are ways for you to corroborate my story. I spoke to eyewitnesses. I looked at other stories that were out there. I went and, uh, and corroborated the different accounts that were, were made by different people in different villages, etc. And therefore, I, I am certain that these are trustworthy uh, stories about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And if you aren't fully satisfied by what I've said... You are free to hunt down the people that I spoke to and ask them yourself because that's what Luke means by stating that he's talked to eyewitnesses and why he's listened to those who have given an account, uh, etc. He's, he's saying that these are people that, that are still around that he did this with. So he's actually willing to appeal to sort of what you could call extra-biblical evidence. Now, if you would like more on this, why this is... I wasn't planning to do this, but if you would like more on this, like why we can trust the Bible, Tuesday night, 7 o'clock, right here in the sanctuary, I'm actually doing a, a much expanded sort of version on the trustworthiness of the Gospels that will give you more things to consider um, that, that make a case that the Bible is the tr fully trustworthy Word of God in a way that no other book ever written can compare. Any other questions? Yeah, Ruben.
Yeah. How do we, how do we, how do we make sure Reuben's question was throughout history, the church has believed things or believed, yeah, has believed things that in fact we now know are actually unbiblical. So how do we, how do we ensure that we are believing what the Bible actually teaches and not just believing based upon our cultural moment? And the answer is to that very simply is to this, there's a, a dictum in the Reformed tradition called um, always reformed means always reforming. So it means that we're always scrutinizing our beliefs again and again, what, what it is we believe, against the scriptures and testing them against the scriptures. And what you'll notice is those, many of those things, virtually all of the things that, we, that come to mind when we talk about the things that the church once believed that shouldn't have believed it and now no longer believes it, what you discover if you're careful in your reading of church history is that those things were, were, were contested virtually from the very beginning. So there was always voices saying, we're not reading this right, we're not, uh, we're not uh, interpreting this correctly, we're not following this the way we ought to. There were always voices that were speaking into that, and at times the church refused to hear those voices, but eventually did. So, you know, obviously slavery is something that comes to mind for a lot of us. We read about Christians defending slavery and, and uh, using the Bible at times to defend slavery and arguing that the Bible uh, condones slavery, etc. Well, the Bible actually never condones slavery. It only ever permits slavery. I'm not saying that that's way better and therefore the Bible is vindicated. But what it does do is it, it points for, it gives us a trajectory toward the freedom of slaves even within itself. So Philemon, for example, is a place where Paul encourages uh, um, Onesimus's, is it Onesimus? Yeah, Onesimus's, that's a tough name, uh, owner to, to free him. And it was actually later in uh, church, in, in the early church, there were already uh, pastors and theologians arguing that the Bible uh, taught that human beings ought not be slaves of any kind. And by the time of the slave trade that we see uh, as sort of the main picture of slavery in our minds, which is very different than biblical slavery, the chattel slavery of the 17th and 18th centuries, uh, it was actually the work of Christians who were reading their Bible faithfully and pressing the biblical teaching about the image of God that caused the breakdown of the slave trade in the West. So it was, so it was similar to what, um, what Martin Luther King Jr. said during the Civil Rights Movement. He said the problem is not that Christianity was wrong about racism and slavery, etc. The problem was that Christians were not practicing their faith wholeheartedly and biblically. And so we don't need less Christianity to overcome uh, racism in America. We actually need more Christianity, Martin Luther King argued. That's a long and wandering answer all over the place. But here's the thing to remember. Reformed means we're always reforming, always testing up against the word. It's the straight edge, right? It's that, that rule that I said, that straight rule that we always have to go back to. I got one more question. I'll see if it's something I can, in theory, answer quickly. Uh, 
The Gospels are also historical and cultural to an extent. Absolutely true. They're written within a cultural context. Uh, this is why reading authors like N.T. Wright, absolutely, he's a great uh, New Testament Greek scholar, is so helpful as it shines new light on the cultural meaning of Scripture at the time. That's right. Why are you so conf confident in the transcultural grounding testimony of Scripture in relation to sex? Um, well, in relation to sex, well, I'll, I'll actually broaden it. So what N.T. Wright has taught us is that, you know, to understand the, uh, the fullness of a teaching of Scripture, it's good to know the historical context in which it was written. He's not the first guy to say that. John Calvin said that. The Reformed tradition has said that for a very, very long time. Uh, and what, what, what that does is, is it enables us to see, okay, what are the teachings of Scripture that are, that are, that are locally and contextual, that are local and contextual, meaning they're meant for a certain time and a certain place and, and not necessarily for other times and places. And what aspect of that teaching is meant for other times and places because it's the principle under the actual teaching itself. Perfect example of that is uh, uh, women wearing head coverings in 1 Corinthians, someone, 14, 11? I think you might be right. 11 and, maybe it's 11 and 14. Anyhow, women wearing, wearing head coverings in church and men wearing, uh, uh, praying with their head uncovered. What's up, wrong with, what's up with that? How come all you women are in here without your, your, your hats on? Well, what we've come to understand is, is that Paul was dealing with a specific problem in the Corinthian church at that time, which was the differences in sex were being undermined by the, new, by the Corinthian church. You've got to remember what, that Corinth, the city, was a highly sexualized city. That's why they were uh, abstaining from sex and not getting married, and that's a whole other side gig that we could talk about, but I'm not going to. Anyway, what we came to understand was, was that in that local cultural context, the way that... Um, the differences between the sexes were maintained was through this practice of head covering. It would be similar today where we say that the differences between men and women are, are signaled through cultural things like length of hair, though not always because there are men with long hair. Sorry to all you long-haired men. Not saying that you're doing anything wrong right now. Things like uh, historically men would wear trousers and women would wear skirts, things like makeup, things like holding the door open for women because that was a courtesy to them that men did to, to show uh, politeness and deference. These things are all being challenged right now and many of them maybe need to go by the wayside, though I would argue a number of them ought not go by the wayside. The last thing I'll say is, is you asked me, the person asked me, well, how can you be so confident about sex? And that one's actually pretty easy to answer because wherever we find in the Bible a teaching that is absolute, that is consistent throughout Scripture, that shows no uh, trajectory away from the original teaching and is rooted in the creation story, we can be absolutely certain that that is true. So, for example, the creation story says that human beings are created in the image of God. That's a creational norm that exists prior to the fall. And so we know that no matter what happens in the world, 
people are all created in the image of God. So you can say that that slave that you had is subhuman, but that's not true because the creation story demonstrates that this is an absolute truth all the way through history. One of the other things the creation story demonstrates as an absolute all the way through, through history is that we were created as male and female, and therefore, as male and female, we image the, the createdness of God that is pictured in the marital union between a man and a woman, it's a picture of the union that God has with humanity as heaven and earth come together in the story of the Bible. If you want to know more about that, my next podcast is actually going to be an, an explanation of what I just said in a lot more clarity, I hope, than I just gave. But the point is, is that I can be sure because the Bible from the very beginning in the Old Testament right up to the end in the New Testament has a consistent and absolute teaching about human sexuality that shows, if anything, it becomes more restrictive in the New Testament, not less. And that's why we know that that principle continues all the way through. It is time to go to the table.